chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. I've titled the message, Christ's Gifts to His Church. As you may be aware, the book of Ephesians is divided into two sections. The first three chapters are often called the doctrinal section, and the second portion, 4 through 6, is often called the practical section. Uh, 4 through 6 are built upon what was written in the first three sections. In chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, the apostle is going to give instructions to the church at Ephesus about spiritual gifts and their purpose within the church. There's a lot of material here, so um, we'll cover as much as we can this morning. I want to make application here to Bible Chapel, uh, not just the church at Ephesus. Let's pray before I start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. Help me, help us as we hear today to speak the word plainly, to hear it plainly, to obey it clearly. And all this may the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, be exalted. And we ask this in his name. Amen. As I said, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to read the text, starting with verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, he said, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, man, in the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Notice the purpose here, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, and the cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knitted together by what every joint supplies according to the effectual working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. You may have noticed the word church is not in uh, the text that we read. I do think it's clear from the context in chapters 1 through 3 that Paul was speaking to the church, to the saints at Ephesus. You will notice also in verse 15 that Christ is called the head, and in verse 16 the believers are called the body of Christ. So before I look at my first point this morning, let me just define what I mean by the word church. I'm going to be quoting from the Bible Chapel Church Constitution, and it defines the church this way. We believe that the universal or Catholic church is the whole number of Christ's people, the elect whom he gathered or will gather to himself, saving them by grace alone through its membership God alone knows. Therefore, it's invisible in the sense that God's knowledge and love of his own and his work of grace in our hearts cannot be seen externally Jesus Christ is the sovereign head of the church, 
which is the body and his bride. Then it goes on and says, and we believe the New Testament visible churches are local autonomous congregations. The people who make up these local churches have credibly professed saving faith in Jesus Christ, have given witness to their faith through believers' baptism by immersion, and show forth marks of regeneration in their lives. As saints, they are called to unite, holding common biblical truths, gather for the purpose of serving God through corporate worship, observation and ordinance, instruction, fellowship, prayer, and exhortation to each other, and that the members should live holy, obedient lives. And there's more. But the church, obviously, is not this building. It's the gathered people here uh, at Bible Chapel and that people are meeting all over the world and these churches. Notice in verse, my first point here in verses 7 through 10, the giver of the gifts. Let me read it again. But to each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, he said, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended. What does it mean but that he first also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. The Apostle Paul makes a transition here from the word all in verse 6, which speaks about the unity of the church, to the individual believers here in verse 7. He says that each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. In verse 7 here, that word grace has the idea or means salvation. That's given to every believer. We can't earn it. We certainly don't deserve it. And this grace would include the new birth, the gift of the Holy Spirit, along with repentance and faith. But notice the second part of the verse says, according to the measure of Christ's gift. We see here that it is Christ who is the giver of these gifts. I believe these are spiritual gifts um, and that every believer uh, is has given them, as described as Ty read in Romans 12 and also in 1 Corinthians 13, or 12, excuse me. Uh, Matthew Pohl, in his commentary, says the phrase, according to the measure of Christ's gifts, he says, in that measure in which it pleased Christ to give them, who gives to some one gift, to some another, to some one degree of the gift, to some another, all have not the same, end of quote. Everybody gets gifts, different diversities of gifts, different applications. Now look back at the text in verses 8 through 10. There's been much written about what the Apostle Paul has in mind here, and certainly I'm not going to take time to delve in it that uh, deep this morning, but in verse 8, the passage uh, in verse 8, Paul takes the uh, quote out of Psalm chapter 68, 18, which speaks about the moving of the Ark of the Covenant, and he makes application for Christ in the church. And again, there's a lot to be said there. What I do want us to look at uh, here is uh, that I want to point out several points from these three verses. Uh, First, you'll notice in these three verses a picture of Christ's birth, his incarnation, his resurrection, and his ascension to the Father. And second, we see Christ's victory over sin, death and the devil and third we will see the generosity of christ as he gives gifts to his church Uh, notice the phrase in verse nine but he who also first descended into the lower parts of the earth it's been interpreted in several ways some commentators see this as speaking of christ descending into the depths of hell 
as he uh, laid uh, in the grave for three days, and they might be right. I'm going to take the position of William Hendrickson takes that this phrase simply speaks of Christ coming to earth in his incarnation and the work he accomplished here as the God-man. He descended, is what Hendrickson would say. Hendrickson says Paul's his best interpreter of his own passages, and so he reminds us of what Paul has already written in Philippians. He says, have this mind in you, this is in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, have this mind in you which was, which was in yours in Christ Jesus, so though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man, he found in, he hum, being found in a human form, he humbled himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God hath highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So what's meant here, Paul would say, is that the eternal God, the one that was far above heavens, the exalted one, was the same Christ who came down and first descended. He humbled himself. He became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. Secondly, we see in this passage, we see Christ's victory over sin, death, and the devil. Uh, again, some commentators see uh, the phrase in verse 8, he led captivity captive, as a reference to the believers that were once captive to Satan uh, but are now free. I think, I think it means that Christ was victorious over Satan. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. He says, And you, being dead in trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwritings and the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And then listen to what Paul says. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Certainly both are true here. Christ has conquered Satan, death, and sin, while at the same time he set the captive free. There's a picture of Christ returning to heaven as a victorious general. Thirdly, we see the generosity of Christ in verse 10. There's a phrase there, he might fill all things. I think this has the idea that all members of his church with gifts. That's Paul's point here. MacArthur says, Christ gained the right to rule the church and to give gifts as he was then filling the entire universe with his divine presence, power, and sovereignty, and blessing, end of quote. You see, what we've learned so far is the glorious incarnate and ascended Christ was not only majestic and glorious, but he was also generous and kind as he gives gifts to his church. Now look at verse 11. These four specific gifts are here. Says uh, Paul says, and he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. It is Christ alone, notice, that gave these gifts. And I don't plan to cover them in great detail, but let me just look at them a little bit. The basic meaning of the word apostle is one that is sent. In the New Testament, it's a technical term that's used to speak of the 12 
12 uh, disciples or 12 apostles, and it would include Matthias, who took place of uh, Judas. Galatians and 1 Corinthians tells us that Paul himself was an apostle. And uh, if you look at the qualifications in Acts chapter 1, that an apostle must have been alive at the time of Christ's ministry and have been a witness to his resurrection. I don't think it's possible to have apostles today, even though some claim they are. The second phrase term here is prophet. Uh, Benson in his commentary says this. He says, a prophet whose office was to explain infallibly the true meaning of the ancient prophecies and themselves to predict future events by virtue of extraordinary revelation made to them. You can write this down. We won't look at it this morning. Acts chapter 11, verses 21 through 28. Uh, we're given an example of a prophet that spoke revelation there from God. Uh, it is my conviction, like the apostles, the office of prophet ceased with the completion of the New Testament. We read these words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The third word is evangelist. This is a kind of interesting word. I might ask you what you think about when you think of an evangelist, uh, maybe one that goes around the country or the world having evangelistic meetings, uh, someone who um, is charismatic in their, in their approach to preaching. Uh, the Cambridge Bible writes this, the word occurs thrice in the New Testament. Here in Ephesians 4, it also appears in Acts 21, verse 8, and in 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. And they say it seems like our word missionary to indicate not a defined ecclesiastical order, but rather a special kind of personal function in ministry, the one of the one of who is called devoted to direct proclamation of the gospel, end of quote. So I was thinking maybe men like Andrew Smith and Ark that we send out as missionaries, Glenn South, they go out as evangelists, they they reach uh, and preach the gospel to unreached people, and they plant churches, uh, and then pastors and elders are appointed. And then the fourth one we see here is the word pastor, teacher. Some of your Bibles may say pastor and teacher. I think the word pastor and teacher are better considered as one group, not two different functions or positions. Hodge, in his commentary, says there's no evidence in Scripture that there is a set of men authorized to teach and not authorized to exhort. The thing is well, well nigh impossible, end of quote. Uh, the word pastor here in, this, uh, in Ephesians means uh, to, um, the, uh, excuse me, uh, the word pastor here means the shepherd. And MacArthur says the pastor teachers are not distinct from bishops, elders. The terms are simply different ways to identify the same person. So when you talk about an elder, a pastor, a bishop, it's defining the same thing. We'll take, you can look at it later, but in Ephesians chapter 20, verse 26, Paul writes there, he says, Therefore I testify you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. He had called the elders of Ephesus to meet him at uh, Miletus, and he says, therefore, um, for I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Speaking to the elders, he says, therefore, take heed to yourself and all the flock amongst which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to separate the church of God, 
which he purchased with his own blood. So it's interesting in verse 17, he calls the elders. And in verse 26, he identifies them as overseers, which is also translated bishop. And in verse 28, we have the word shepherd, which we get our English word pastor from. So uh, MacArthur says all of these are the same office. The word pastor means the shepherd, and the Greek word bishop has the basic meaning of overseer, and the Greek word for elder is a title. Again, going back to the Bible Chapel Constitution, it reads, the elders also referred to as bishops and overseers or pastors are to be appointed based on their qualifications set forth in Scripture, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. They are to faithfully guide and rule for the spiritual welfare of the body as a whole and members individually by giving themselves to the ministry of word and prayer. They are to be examples to the flock and life and conduct. Now, not mentioned in this text are the deacons. Uh, these men are mentioned in 1 Timothy 3. At Bible Chapel, um, they assist the elders in the care of the ministry of congregation. They also include duties not limited to the upkeep of the building and the maintenance and attend to the legal responsibilities of the church. There is a distinction, though, between the elders and the pastors or deacons, or, and uh, the distinction is too specific. The elders are required to be the main teachers of the local congregation and are also given the oversight to shepherd and oversee to protect the congregation from false teachers and false teaching. So look at verse 12. We'll see the purpose of the gifts. There's uh, three specific things mentioned here. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. <clears throat> the word uh, equipping of the saints, the work of the ministry, and of edifying the body of Christ, three things. The word equipping here has the idea of restoring something or making it complete. Again, MacArthur commenting says, in this context, it refers to leading Christians from sin to obedience. So in the church, the elders, pastors, or teachers are given the primary task of preparing the saints, the believers of the church, to be complete, to leading them from, uh, from sin unto a life uh, that is pleasing to Christ. Of course, the primary way this is done is through the preaching and teaching of the word, and of course, also through prayer. So it's the responsibility of the pastors and elders of the church to pray for the congregation. The second uh, purpose is listed in verse 12 is the work of the ministry. And this is where it gets interesting here. Certainly the elders and pastors of the church are to be involved in the work of the ministry, but Paul's point here is that it is not just the pastors and leaders of the church, but it's the responsibility of all the members of the congregation in the, to be involved in the local ministry. And then third, he says in verse 12, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The idea is, as the elders and pastors lead the congregation, as the congregation grows and becomes complete and equipped, the whole church is edified and built up in love. Hendricks again commenting on this, he said, it's the task of the officers of the church to equip the church for these tasks. So the purpose of Christ's gifts is that the whole church will work together for the good of the ministry, and as a result, the entire church will be built up in love towards Christ and one another. 
Now, there's some evidences of the gifts. There's some things we should see in the church. And Paul lists those out in verses 13 through 15. Notice here he says to the, uh, we all, verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be tossed as children to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But then he goes on, he says, but speaking the truth in love, it may grow up into all things unto him who is the head, even Christ. So I've read to you the goal of the gifts mentioned in verses 13 through 15 are spiritual and congregation maturity. The purpose of verse 12 is that the elders and the pastors will lead the whole congregation to become ministry partners so that the entire church can be built up. And so in verses 13 through 15, the apostle gives us what I've called some marks or evidence that we should see in a spiritually mature church. How do we know if this is working? Maybe another way to put it is how do leaders in the congregation evaluate the effectiveness of verse 12? So in verse 13, Paul mentions several things. First, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Just talk about Bible chapel for a minute. I hope this is true of us, uh, but uh, do we see the unity of the oneness among the congregation when it comes to sound doctrine? I think we could say, yes, we do. Uh, Does the unity revolve around us growing deeper in knowledge and the love of God's word? I hope it does. Uh, it's not just learning head knowledge, but it's, it's a knowledge that moves us. Um, and then Paul would say, to a perfect man, to the, manger, man to, the, excuse me, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Uh, the word perfect here has the idea of complete or mature, and so that fullness is in Christ. One commentator said, Christ himself is the standard for spiritual maturity and perfection. And so, again, I ask us, can we look around and look at ourselves and others and see what Paul says in Romans 8, that we are being conformed to the image and the likeness of his son. It's not just, again, that we love for God's word, but that we have a love for his people and that we have a love for Christ. Does our body reflect these things? And in verse 14, Here the Apostle Paul gives us what I call bad evidence. Notice again he says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. These are professing believers in the church that have not adhered to sound doctrine. They're still spiritually immature. Paul calls them children. Uh, The evidence is that they are tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Uh, Moffat, in his commentary, says they're blown off course and swayed by every passing wind of doctrine, end of quote. They're like a boat. You can picture a boat in the water. Uh, No clear direction. They're going one direction one day and another direction the next. And they are easily swayed by clever, deceitful teachers whose goal is not edification, not building up, but destruction. So you can see how important it is in the church to have a unity of the faith in the life of every believer and, of course, uh, being led uh, by the elders or teachers of the church. 
Spiritual children lack discernment, but mature believers have their firm foundation in God's holy word. So that brings me to our final point here. We see this in verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and knitted together by what every joint supplies, according to the effectual working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself or itself in love. So we've seen the giver of the gifts, the specific gifts, the purpose of those gifts, and the evidence of the gifts. Now this is the individual's response. This is where the rubber beats the road, if you want to talk about it. Notice here, it is from Christ that the whole body is joined and knitted together by what every joint supplies. So Paul uses the picture here of a human body to describe the body of Christ. This is really the diversity that we see in the body. As we see a diversity in the human body, we also see that diversity in the body of Christ. He says we are held together as one. There are different functions, different gifts, but one body, as we read earlier. Paul says every joint supplies something to the entire body through the effectual working of Jesus Christ or the head. And so for the body to function correctly, all the parts must work or supply something. There can be no idle parts. We read in the middle of verse 16, every part does its share that causes growth of the body. So in our scripture reading, as Ty read this morning in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, we learned that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to every believer as he sees fit. And these gifts are to be used for the good of the body and the kingdom of Christ. So the question again is for you and myself, are we doing our share with our spiritual gifts and our God-given talents to see the church grow? Albert Barnes says, there is no member of the church need be useless any more than a minute nerve or blood vessel in the body need to be useless. No matter how obscure the individual may be, he may contribute to the harmony and vigor of the whole body. We're all important. We all work together. You might say, well, what can we do? Well, I'm going to give you some suggestions. I'll read from the church constitution. It says, every member is urged to faithfully attend all the stated meetings of the church, the stated meetings of the service on the Lord's Day, the Lord's Supper, the midweek prayer service, the business meetings of the membership, and any special meetings which the elders may occasionally call. Reading from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, as we all do our part, not by neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. So regular attendance is a good start. As we meet together, we exhort and encourage one another. I, again, reading from the church constitution, every member agrees to willingly serve the local body of Christ according to his natural talents and spiritual gift and God-given responsibilities. The members, listen, must actively seek to cultivate acquaintances with one another so they may be better able to pray for one another, love, comfort, and encourage one another, and to help one another materially as necessary. The phrase one another here occurs over 50 times in the New Testament about um, how we should interact with each other in the local church. 
cannot continue from the church constitution. Given, giving, members are responsible for the ongoing life and ministry of the church for their, by their regular financial gifts. Our church covenant, as the words which we read last week, contribute cheerfully and regularly to the financial support of the ministry, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel. Look, we've all got talents. Some can give more, some can give less. Some have been blessed with finances, some haven't. But all are responsible to be a part and contribute to this body. If you're not a member here, I'd encourage you to become one. However, the application is certainly for all of us today. So these are just some ways that your gifts and talents can be used in a church. We've got women's outreach, men's meeting, VBS, nursery, music, Sunday school teachers, work days, church maintenance, not to mention small groups, hospitality, meal preparation. Just a simple phone call, a text, a card goes a long way. There's many others I could mention, but Paul's point here, listen, is that every part does its share. Every part depends on the other. And MacArthur says, godly biblical church growth results from every member of the body fully using their spiritual gifts. So I would say to you all and myself today, if you want to see our church grow, these are some practical ways that we can accomplish that. This is what the scripture says. So let me conclude with these final thoughts here. I've been speaking this morning to the believers have not if you're here today and not trusted Christ as your Savior, I would say to you, today is the day of salvation. Do not leave here today without repenting of your sins and trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord. To the believers, we've seen that Christ has given us gifts of grace. That's the salvation. That gift has brought us into a new life and a new relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've been reminded that the eternal, majestic Christ, the giver of the gifts, steps down from heaven, fulfilled all righteousness, died in our place. Same Christ rose again, ascended back to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father until he returns for his church. In his resurrection and ascension, he conquered Satan, death, and sin. He set the captive free same Christ in the Gospels who said, I will build my church, gave gifts to his church to accomplish this task. Gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, teachers. To the local church, those pastors, teachers, or elders, to oversee the local church. They are to teach God's word and to shepherd the flock that God has given them. They are to equip the saints, the believers, in the local church to do the work of the ministry. The elders are to unify the body of Christ in faith and knowledge of the Son of God. And as a result, the whole church should be stable and consistent, not carried about by false teaching. The members of the church have been given gifts so that they can do the work of the ministry. Every member is interconnected, we've learned this morning, with each other. Each member must do their part or the body will not grow. The purpose this morning here is not to make anybody feel guilty, but to encourage you. Every one of us is important. Everyone's necessary, and everyone is needed for the growth of this local church. It's a privilege, 
but it's also a responsibility as believers to use the gifts that Christ has given us to build his church and his kingdom. The songwriter Thomas Kelly, or the hymn writer, put it this way, Praise the Savior, ye who know him, who can tell how much we owe him. Gladly let us render to him all we are and have. Amen. Will you stand with me and we'll close in prayer.